Welcome to Louisiana Lefty, a podcast about politics and community in Louisiana, where we make the case that the health of the state requires a strong progressive movement fueled by the critical work of organizing on the ground. Our goal is to democratize information, demystify party politics, and empower you to join the mission because victory for Louisiana requires you. I'm your host, Linda Woolard. On this episode, I speak with Corinne Green, who's a policy and legislative strategist for national organization, Equality Federation, as well as a longtime activist working within the state group, Louisiana Trans Advocates. Our conversation walks through the attacks targeting the LGBTQ community and the transgender community specifically that we saw play out in Louisiana's legislative session this year and puts them into a broader context of what's been brewing for many years in America and is occurring across red states today. Corinne recommends that anyone interested in being more engaged join the Legislative Organizing Coalition for All LGBTQ Louisianans or LOCAL as their acronym goes. And we've included the link to that in addition to other resources we discuss in our episode notes. Corinne Green, welcome to Louisiana Lefty. Thank you. Great to be here, Linda. Well, it's great to see you again. We've known each other for quite a while, although I guess we lost touch for a little while in there when you left the state. But we met back in the Equality Louisiana days. That's right. The good old the good old days back when we had both LTA, Louisiana Trans Advocates, and EQLA, Equality Louisiana, and they were secretly just the same people anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Two organizations with aligned missions. Yeah. And and we all you, as soon as I began getting involved in state politics, your name just came up all the time. Uh, so it was very cool to get to meet you back then and great to reconnect uh, now that I was able to come back home. And so I mentioned it was back in the EQLA days. And part of the reason EQLA went away, right, is because when John Bell Edwards got elected, a lot of those folks from Equality Louisiana ended up in his administration. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of us from Equality Louisiana and LTA were just too good at what we we did. Uh, and so a lot of several of us got hired into the administration. I actually even worked as um, a, a policy intern in the administration for a while doing drug policy. Uh, and then also uh, the other problem is that most of us have gotten hired out to do advocacy work outside of the state because there are not many paid positions for queer advocacy work in Louisiana. That's how we met. But tell me your political origin story, how did you get interested in politics in the first place? Yeah, so I had always been interested in politics and, and kind of followed it and, and developed very strong opinions about politics. But it wasn't until I came out as trans in 2012 that I started paying more attention to state level politics. Um, because the kinds of things that were making, you know, the, the news around state politics at that time were like religious freedom restoration acts and pastor protection acts and, and, and stuff like that. Um, which obviously as, uh, a queer person, uh, just hit a lot harder than, you know, complex tax policy or, or budget allocation stuff, which obviously I have opinions about. Um, but what grabs the headlines is that kind of stuff. And so when Louisiana was appearing in political news, it was usually in contexts like that. And um, 
the way that Louisiana Trans Advocates is set up, it's um, kind of first and foremost, a network of support groups around the state. Uh, and so I'd begun attending those when I came out uh, in 2012. And uh, it was very clever to set LTA up that way because that allowed the kind of engaged advocacy side, uh, those kinds of folks to recruit and, and find uh, other like actual trans people to, to bring in and do leadership development with um, and try to kind of get uh, hitch up to the cart uh, and pull along with them. And so uh, some really amazing um, trans and queer activists, um, among them you know, Tucker Berry, Matthew Patterson, uh, Micah Caswell, kind of took me took me in and, and taught me how to organize and how to do policy work and then actually managed to turn that into a career somehow. So tell me about from that moment where you got involved in politics, what are the career highlights you've had along the way politically and what are you doing now? Yeah, so I, I think one of my favorite uh, stories to tell kind of about that part of my political development is that when I you know, joined up uh, to do the advocacy work with LTA and Equality Louisiana, um, I, we all just kind of did what interested us and then we made up titles to give ourselves a little more credibility and, and, and to get <laughs> to put on resumes. Uh, and so I was very interested in kind of the dorky nerdy policy side of things. And so that's where I, I was allowed to kind of, you know, get put and, and insert myself. And so um, I kind of started off working on um, like our long running, long suffering employment non-discrimination act. This year was actually the 30th year that it had been introduced in the Louisiana legislature. Um, and so working on, you know, this legislation that had already been written, uh, but kind of working on the conversations around it and the lobbying and the comms materials and, and talking about it in technical ways and, and talking about what it does, what it did and didn't do. Um, and similarly to analyze kind of the, the bad legislation that had been filed to figure out what it did and didn't do and how to talk about that and how to figure out how to defeat it or in certain cases come up with like amendments to, to make them less bad or potentially, you know, kind of nullify the bad effects. Um, and so I, I had a really easy entry into doing policy work because I got to start with things that were like mostly already written and I just got to work with them from there. Um, but at the same time, I was also getting involved in harm reduction work. Uh, several of my good friends um, were, were doing that kind of work because queer people are disproportionately likely uh, to, to experience overdoses and things like that. And so um, I was working with some friends uh, from a needle exchange in New Orleans, and we had come up with a project that we wanted to do of uh, trying to get Narcan, Naloxone, the overdose reversal drug. So if someone's overdosing on opioids, you can give them this as, as either intramuscular injection or a nasal spray. Um, and it, it literally wakes them up and, and, and saves their life and prevents an overdose. Uh, so we were working on a project to try to um, to get that into kind of hotspot areas around the city behind like bar counters or um, convenience store counters. Uh, we had hotspot data from the city health department of where overdoses were happening. We wanted to target those areas um, to try to get more Narcan out in the community. Um, the problem we ran into at the time uh, was that it was not actually legal for lay people, that is you know, non-pharmacists to you know, hand Narcan to somebody else or for, for other people to, to keep and hold it. Uh, and so no business owners or managers would actually agree to do that because unfortunately they all look at their liability in the bottom line. 
And so a lot of the, the folks that I was working with who are, you know, not, were not super plugged into kind of legislative uh, developments uh, because they've been failed so many times uh, by, you know, law that you know, can't blame them for that. Um, but because I was doing, I'd been doing that kind of policy work uh, with EQLA and LTA already, I thought, well, you know, I, I know just enough to get myself into trouble here. Let me look up where, you know, where it says that people can't do this. And let me just see if I could, how, how, how much of a, like a, a, a lift it would be to change that. And so I actually looked up, uh, you know, the, the statutes around it and I saw, oh, well, I can, you know, it, if there were just like one short sentence here, this would all be fine. And I don't see any reason why I can't just write that sentence and, and try to find somebody to run it uh, and do like the lobbying and the coalition building and the driving grassroots kind of calls the same way that I'd done for other stuff. And so, uh, so I, I just kind of did it. I decided to do it. Nobody told me I couldn't. And so that was actually the first bill that I ever you know, researched and wrote and got passed myself. Um, I found Representative Helena Moreno, who was in the state legislature at the time, um, kind of talked to her, made the case for it. She agreed that it sounded like um, something that would be a really good public health measure and agreed to run it. And so then she actually handled a lot of the, the, the conversations and I handled a lot of the kind of grassroots organizing for driving calls and support, you know, all the, the comms and social media uh, shareable graphics and stuff like that. And we actually got it passed relatively easily uh, because that was around the time when, um, you know, more, more white people were beginning to experience overdoses as fentanyl penetrated more heavily and began replacing heroin. And so all of these legislators who um, can, can be hard to win over to, to causes like this were actually getting pressured from their constituents to be seen to be doing something on, on overdoses. And so, you know, coming to them with this like very common sense public health measure to get this life-saving, make this life-saving drug more accessible, was actually a, like a, a very bipartisan uh, setup. And so we had really broad support for it. Um, and so that was actually the first uh, bill that I, I, I wrote and passed uh, was making it legal for folks to, uh, like lay people to possess and, and distribute Narcan. Um, and I'll, I'll also, that actually ties in well with kind of another one of my favorite stories, which is that, you know, part of pushing um, legislation forward is you want to assemble really strong testimony package um, to get you know experts or issue area uh, folks to come in and, and talk about their lived experience or why this needs to happen. And so uh, I was trying to find someone to represent uh, the medical field to come in and talk about uh, to be like our expert for it in uh, committee hearings. And I one of the uh, folks I was working with. Um, kind of in the harm reduction scene was an EMT, uh, non-binary person named Kasha Bornstein. Um, and they're an anarchist. And so they were kind of hard to convince. So like, please come to the legislature and talk about why we need this law. And they're like, ah, this, this never saves our people, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I know, but what if it could, right? And so I, I convinced them to agree to come testify. And they got to, you know, they came in and supported it and they got to see it pass out of that committee. And they got to see it pass the floor and then they came in and, and helped in on the other the committee on the other side saw it pass there and saw it pass the floor there and saw it become law and then like that just opened up possibilities for the things that like the actual folks on the ground were able to do with narcan in in louisiana and so uh this actually like 
blew Kasha's mind. There's like, wow, we can just like write down the words that would make the world a little bit better and then go in and, and talk about them and then good things can actually happen. Uh, and you can actually use the legislative process to help people. And I was like, yeah. Uh, and, and so this, this anarchist, uh, when they actually went off to med school in Florida because of uh, that eye-opening experience of seeing uh, legislation and policy work being used for good in Louisiana, um, they actually worked on and passed a syringe exchange authorization law in Florida while they were there for medical school. Uh, and so just like two of my, my uh, kind of foundational um, policy work stories kind of intertwined there. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. I love those stories. Well, tell me then from there, like what took you out of Louisiana? What did you go to do from that point? Yeah, so um, from that point, I had uh, you know been doing uh, the policy side of things for LTA and Equality Louisiana for a while, and had also done um, that work on uh, passing the the Narcan bill in Louisiana, and had done some things for um, through the Office of Drug Policy when I was there uh, in JB's administration, um, and actually got hired by Transgender Law Center. Um, to go do policy for for them, um, so they're a by, national by who tra transgender law center. They're a national uh, trans rights organization. They mainly do litigation uh, uh, work, uh, but they have one they have one policy position, um, and so they they hired me to go work for them. And they uh, they're out in the Bay Area, and so I moved out to Oakland um, to work for them. And kind of my uh, the the two things that I'm most proud of there are that um, I, you know, got to work on and pass California's Gender Recognition Act, which is um, the, the law that passed in California allowing folks to uh, get non-binary gender markers on their identification documents and actually switching to self-attestation for trans people to update their gender markers. So whereas in the past you would need like some sort of doctor to write a note or, or like sign off on something this moved it to, you know, you can just go in and sign an affidavit that you know, you're trans and you need, you know, your gender marker needs to be this to reflect who you are. Uh, it just makes it a lot more accessible for folks. Uh, and so I think that, that was the single largest expansion of access to non-binary gender markers in the country uh, that I got to work on out there. Um, and then kind of the other thing that I am uh, most proud of from my, uh, my policy work there was uh, I unfortunately correctly identifying that trans healthcare access was probably the area of trans rights that was going to need the most attention and support moving forward. Um, and so in 2017, I conceived of uh, the Protect Trans Health Campaign, which at the time was the first ever joint project of the two kind of national, premier national trans rights organizations, Transgender Law Center and the National Center for Transgender Equality. Um, they'd never collaborated on a joint project before, um, but I was able to get both organizations on board to this roadmap that I had dreamed up that started with um, uh, kind of grassroots advocacy, trying to defend Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, which is the non-discrimination section. So the part of the Affordable Care Act that prohibits discrimination in the provision of healthcare services on the basis of sex. Um, and obviously, as trans activists and, and just civil rights minded folks in general, we interpret that to mean uh, including trans people, including on the basis of gender identity. 
And so that was actually part of the Obama administration rule elaborating on Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act that at the time the Trump administration was aiming to roll back. And so we wanted to mount a really vocal defense of it, um, of those protections, and then uh, ideally pivot after getting folks engaged um, on that front with that very kind of headline getting uh, item to then try to harness that energy and, and redirect it to state-based advocacy for trans healthcare access. Um, and kind of depending on the state that would take different forms, you know, in, in kind of more progressive states, it might be um, like actually trying to enshrine trans healthcare access in, in law or in, or in regulation in um, more challenging states for doing that kind of policy work. Um, it would be kind of doing uh, corporate advocacy, trying to get them to update you know, voluntarily their, their own employee health insurance plans to make sure that, uh, that trans healthcare was covered. Um, that unfortunately didn't pan out. The timing was very bad in terms of the kind of overall health of the trans movement at the time. Uh, and so when the National Center for Transgender Equality uh, wound up losing all except for their, their direct leadership staff and kind of a big unionizing incident, uh, the that project unfortunately fell apart. And I still dream to this day of I wonder if the world would be a slightly different place uh, if, if we had actually been able to kind of fulfill uh, that that roadmap of that Protect Trans Health campaign that unfortunately we're not able to. Maybe not, but it's nice to dream. So who are you working for now? Uh, so right now I work for Equality Federation. Um, and if you haven't heard of them, it's not that surprising. Um, they are not a, generally a, a public facing organization. What we do is uh, we are a, a membership organization. Our members are the state level equality organizations. Um, so here in Louisiana, Forum for Equality and Louisiana Trans Advocates are members of Equality Federation. And so at Equality Federation, I'm the policy and legislative strategist. Um, so I help with policy analysis, um, bill development, legislative strategy, um, connecting di different states who are maybe working on the same issue so that they can share resources. Um, and we're also kind of the, the membrane, the go-between between state level groups and the national level groups. And so um, state partners will tell us kind of what they need and we're able to connect them to, uh, if there are any, hopefully there are national organizations that are, that are producing or working on the things they need to the, those organizations at the national level who can support that. So you're working for a national organization. You're working not just in the state of Louisiana, you're working with other that, states. That's right. Um, but Equality Federation has actually been all remote for something like 15 or 16 years. And so when you know I got a pure work from home job, I just immediately hightailed it back here to Louisiana because I believe very strongly that one of the reasons that the South is so historically under-resourced and under-supported in terms of LGBTQ advocacy is just that you know all of the uh, the, the national advocacy groups are are based in, you know, they're either in New York, D.C., or in a few cases, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and so because there are not many folks at, at this level of the movement actually in the South, um, it, it is, there's just a little bit more distance and a little more disconnect between folks on the ground here and the folks doing that work. Um, and I would love to just have 
you know, the ma majority of national level queer movement snappers be based in, in places like the South and Midwest. I think that would make uh, a real difference. I'm, I'm just doing my my little part um, to to try to, to work on that. Well, and we certainly saw over this legislative session significant attacks on LGBTQ community, on trans community specifically, but anybody watching nationally had to know that was coming, right? Sort of. Um, I will say, so one, one of the responsibilities of my, my job at Equality Federation is actually tracking legislation nationally. Uh, and so I run our bill tracker. I think I have, uh, I, I run one of the, the most uh, wide reaching uh, bill trackers of, of any kind of national that does bill tracking. I take a really wide view of what is a queer issue. So I count, you know, like broad criminal justice bills as, as being relevant to queer people, and, you know, kind of all this stuff like that, because all of these things disproportionately affect queer people the same way that these kinds of policies disproportionately affect black people and other people of color. Um, and so I try to track as broadly as I can. Uh, and so, but what that also means is that I read every single one of these anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ bills that uh, come in around the country. Um, and so I have, I'm one of the, the few unfortunate people in, in, in the country who actually have a complete picture of like how absurd things have gotten. And I wound up having to pull some data for a researcher yesterday. Um, um, they were looking for 2022 data. And so I knew this kind of intellectually, but I hadn't had time to breathe this year to actually like really put it in front of me again. And so I had to uh, provide them the number of, for example, of healthcare bans that were filed last year. So around the country, there were 35 healthcare bans filed last year total. Um, and this year there were, uh, I think we're at 130, uh, if not 133 or something like that filed this year um, and not counting Louisiana 18, uh, have passed uh, just in the last six months alone. And I, I believe two passed last year. And so the um, the sheer proliferation uh, of anti-trans legislation that we've seen this year is completely unprecedented. Uh, I've been doing this work for almost 10 years. Um, and it's not just that, you know, the number of healthcare bans is so much greater than it ever has been. Uh, it's also that the number of not like completely novel anti-trans attacks that have come in is so much greater. There are more new types of bills doing new bad things uh, than we've ever seen before. So in my previous, you know, I've been doing this work for almost 10 years, I think about eight or something. And uh, the maximum number of like novel anti-trans legislative attacks that the movement has had to like figure out and reckon with and respond to. The maximum number of that those per year uh, has been one. Maximum number of one of those per year, my entire career until this year, when depending on how you kind of slice it and uh, partition bills into categories, there's, there's probably somewhere between eight and 14 kind of new types of anti-trans bills this year. And this is also the year where uh, I think we're getting a, a preview of where the anti-trans attacks are going as they've begun to incorporate uh, TRAP style language from the abortion field. So TRAP stands for Targeted Restrictions on Abortion Providers. Um, so it's the kind of things where they say like, you know, if you do abortions, your hallways must be this wide and people must have admitting privileges for here and there. And like all these nitpicky things that don't actually have anything to do with the healthcare service being provided, 
we're seeing those kinds of things lifted whole cloth from abortion bills directly into uh, to trans healthcare bans. And um, one of the most alarming ways that that has manifested itself is in um, the number of bills, trans healthcare ban bills filed that have uh, implications for uh, basically interstate travel or just pure information dissemination um, is, is really alarming. Uh, and you know, one of the first healthcare bans to pass this year, I think it was actually was the first healthcare ban to pass this year in Mississippi um, directly uh, prohibits aiding and abetting um, any minor in accessing gender affirming healthcare. And of course we have no case law to guide us on what that means or how that will be applied. Uh, and so it's really easy for kind of the policy analysts in the movement to spin our wheels and wind up in some really dark places of thinking about how this stuff could be wielded if, you know, if like a Ron DeSantis were going to try to push it to the maximal position. Um, and then obviously there's some really scary provisions in the, the Florida healthcare ban that passed um, in terms of uh, child custody, in terms of the state uh, reserving the the right to basically uh, remove trans children from their parents uh, in certain kind of custody situations, uh, as well as uh, they also have one of the uh, like clearest trap target restriction on abortion providers style language provisions in their anti-trans health bill um, that a requires any provider uh, providing trans health care, so even simple like maintenance non-controversial, very simple, very low side effects, hormone replacement therapy must be an actual uh, physician, can't be like a nurse practitioner or a registered nurse. Uh, and, and what we know from the data is that roughly 80% of trans patients do access their like regular hormones through those kinds of providers rather than uh, a, you know, an actual full-fledged physician, which is not unusual for, for people who are on kind of you know maintenance, low complication uh, medicines of any kind. And so when you're hearing reports in Florida of trans adults losing access to their healthcare, even though you know, the bill only specifically technically prohibited it for minors, it's because of that huge reduction in the uh, available prescribers for, for providing that kind of care. And then even further, that it mandated that physicians who do provide that care, even if they're you know, just working at a small family clinic in, in the country or you know, in the middle of nowhere, they have to maintain uh, hospital surgeon level of malpractice insurance, which is remarkably more expensive than the level of malpractice insurance that you would normally need to carry if you were just kind of a rural provider at a clinic. Do you have a sense of who's driving the anti-trans legislation nationwide? Or, and when I say nationwide, I don't mean that. I mean state, state by state. Right. Yeah. So, so what we what we know is that there are um, a there there has been always uh, basically a kind of religious conservative national bill mill. Um, you know, and and Alec will contribute to this too. But there are also these other groups that are not as prominent uh, for whom this has like been their defining issue for a while. Not necessarily trans healthcare, but generally anti LGBT measures in general. Um, and then. I think as the visibility of trans people has increased, mm -hmm. um, they have really honed in on uh, on trans people as like their uh, wedge issue that 
they want to like take and propel forward. And so when we first saw healthcare ban bills being introduced a couple of years ago, they were, they were pretty rare and there, were, there was not much juice behind them. Um, but I think what has happened is that uh, just this really unfortunate confluence of events where these people have been kind of riding this hobby horse for a while. And then simultaneously this, I'm just going to say it outright, kind of fascist wave that has overtaken the Republican party um, had been casting about for a while for its, you know, the, the most effective kind of opponent to, to be the target of fascist dehumanization um, and started off in kind of the attack on education, uh, the pushback against the teaching of like accurate history in American schools. Um, and kind of through that, uh, it kind of metastasized and then they found uh, talking about the existence of LGBTQ people in schools was was also a winner for them. That kind of branched over into general anti-LGBTQ and anti-trans sentiment that then these uh, kind of bill mill organizations were more than ready to step in and hand them these kind of ready-made, you know, horribly transphobic bills on a platter. And so we we had this like just perfect storm of uh, stumbling onto this very, very small minority population um, that many people still don't know a trans person. And so it's, uh, it, there's not that like direct connection um, that, that gives people kind of pause to question some of the rhetoric they hear about us. Um, and that has resulted in this, unfortunately, extremely successful uh, wave of anti-trans sentiment that uh, we are now seeing is like dragging uh, kind of, when, when you poll Americans on how they feel about LGBTQ issues or trans people, and trans policy issues specifically, we're seeing like a really scary regression, uh, a mm -hmm. pullback of kind of support across the board. Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with kind of happening on any kind of uh, like identity-based, uh, class-based sort of uh, measure before uh, in kind of the political history of the US. It may have, I'm, I'm just not aware, um, but I, I've, I've certainly not seen anything like this before. Well, and we're talking about legislatures across the country, but it's the school boards and PTAs and stuff that are really seeing the where the rubber hits the road a lot of the times. Yeah. And obviously, the big gin up they're doing now is the trans women in sports, right? right? Where they've actually, I don't know if you saw the news article that came out today, it was actually, I think, in Canada. But uh, I guess this is also infecting Canada now, but there, there was uh, some grandparents that wanted to check one of the girls in a track meet. Yeah, a nine-year-old shot putter had a pixie cut and, uh, and they, they were really, really mad. They thought that surely this was a trans athlete trying to steal the athletic glory of the nine-year-old track uh, competition from Presumably their child. I assume they had. <laughs> I hope but, they had a child. Yeah, right. But I mean, the the outrage machine, right? It's the same way like Youngkin got elected governor in Virginia, as you rightly pointed out, was the CRT issue where they ginned up that issue for parents and folks. What was that one line where they asked someone why they voted for Youngkin CRT? And what? well, can you define CRT? I No, I can't, but I know I don't like it. And it's that yeah. same kind of ginning up of the outrage amongst folks. And I think that's how um, it's 
I think it's, I think that's why they're targeting this because they can get that out. Right. It, it, it's really terrifying to see how successful it has been and how rapidly kind of the national discourse around trans people has deteriorated. You know, I I I think it was I think it was maybe the year I came out or just a couple years after when Laverne Cox was on the cover of Time magazine and you know the the the, the title was the transgender tipping point, uh, and and it really felt like you know the visibility was was doing us a lot of good that that you know people were meeting trans people or hearing about trans people from trans people and you know the research shows that when you talk when someone who does who's never met a trans person before actually gets to talk to a trans person that drastically increases their understanding and, and just kind of general support of trans people because it's not some constructed stereotype boogeyman in their head anymore um but seeing especially this kind of pedophile branding catch on is is remarkably uh, just really disconcerting and scary. Um, because I, I think that there, as it seems like the political content of American political discourse becomes more and more unmoored from um, like kind of actual foundational political policy, you know, like, like how we as a society allocate resources and how we take care of, um, you know, the mo most marginalized among us, that as the discussion kind of moves out of that traditional realm of political discussion and more into this kind of nebulous posturing uh, us versus them rhetoric, it, it just seems like it's going, it's very difficult uh, to reground it in, you know, actual issues that make a difference to people because, uh, and, I, and I think what Trump, I, I hate learning, about what Trump says in his speeches, but he gave a speech over the weekend and I think he, he kind of said it straight up. He said, you know, when I, it used to be when I talk about taxes or, or this kind of thing, people would go, but now when I talk about transgender, they love it, you know? Right, and and, right. and I, I think that- uh, Different between the golf clap and the cheers, right? Right, right, yeah. which which is, it's, it's unfortunately true that that does seem to be the case because all of these people who are fired up and want to do anti-trans things, They've never met a trans person. They've just learned about us on Fox News and then decided that something must be done that Fox News says must be done about us. Um, and that is how they are kind of making their political decisions. And it's it's really frustrating as someone who does policy work for a living to see that kind of separation from uh, like real politic work into the realm of symbolism. But if I understood you correctly, you're you're basically saying the folks who are initially driving this as a culture war issue are cynically doing so because they see it as something think that they can get people upset about. They they don't necessarily believe the things they're saying. They just think this is something they can get people upset about. Is that your understanding I, or no? So that that was kind of when when this wave started, that's 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 pretty an accurate summation of, of how I felt. But more and more now, I think that even the folks kind of at the top stirring this up, I think more and more of them, as they have seen how successful it, it has been for them, kind of uh, have, have drunk their own Kool-Aid basically mm -hmm. and, and, and kind of really do either, well, whether they like actually believe it or not, I'm, I'm not sure, but they really do, I believe, sincerely want to do the things that they are saying they want to do. Right, right. Right. So, so when they get up there on the the CPAC stage and say they want to eliminate trans people, like I actually believe, 
like whether whether that person believes that you know we are all satanic pedophiles or not i i do sincerely believe that he really does want to eliminate trans people while we try to do evergreen content i do want to talk a little bit about what happened in our legislative session this year because i believe it's instructive right mm -hmm. so can you can you tell me a little bit about the bills that came up in session this year and how that how that played out yeah so one thing about Louisiana um, that I have kind of noticed my, myself um, having kind of started engaging you know, nationally in a whole bunch of other states is that it seems to me like Louisiana kind of gets the national wave of conservative legislative efforts typically two or three years behind a lot of other states. Um, I, I think that's because we have a lot of kind of, you know, pride in our state and, and Louisianans kind of guiding their own agendas and, and, and that kind of thing, which is which is great. Um, but what I think that this year really proved to me is that that might not be the case anymore and that this kind of national fervor is very, very active here. And so uh, the, the bills that we've seen in, in Louisiana this year, um, the, the primary ones that uh, I'll mention are uh, HB 648, which was our trans healthcare ban um, that bans trans healthcare for anyone under 18. Um, it's also very sloppily written, I'll say, as someone who does draft her own legislation. Um, it's remarkable some of the ways in which this seems to have been so hastily put together. Um, but so there's that trans healthcare ban. Um, there is um, a don't say gay bill, uh, which we is the, the term that kind of uh, was coined in Florida to talk about the prohibition on um, mention even or discussion of LGBTQ people in schools and certainly the exclusion of any LGBTQ history or topics from curriculum or even sex ed. And our, our don't say gay bill here in Louisiana is actually the worst I've ever seen. And uh, I think that's because of that kind of traditional delay in Louisiana getting things like this. The, the legislators who kind of put this stuff together haven't learned the lessons that were maybe learned in other places. So for example, um, when we first started seeing these, they're, they're just entire straight up blanket prohibitions on any mention of any sexual orientation or gender identity in school, which obviously can be interpreted to mean, you know, a, a cisgender heterosexual person, uh, you know, a straight person uh, in a straight marriage. You know, if they have a wedding band on, that signals that they're, you know, is that an indication of, of you know, their sexual orientation? Is that allowed? Can you have a picture of your spouse, even if you're straight on your desk? We don't know. And so in a lot of places, when they're filing these now, they don't write them that way because that is kind of a really obvious weakness of legislation like this. But our don't say gay bill never, like our folks never learned that lesson. Uh, and so they just filed the, the straight, unvarnished, just bad, very, very ridiculous and bad version uh, of this. And then the other thing um, that, we've, that we've seen a lot of um, this session alludes to kind of the, those school board level, local level, uh, desktops that you referenced earlier, um, kind of the fight over what books, libraries, and schools are allowed to, to have and, and make available to students. And so uh, there are a, a couple um, kind of library bills targeting um, you know, sensitive topics, uh, which, which we know is mostly code for you know, uh, racial history of, of America, LGBTQ existence, um, things like that. Um, and, and what 
blows my mind is there's even one bill specifically to enable the, the takeover of kind of the oversight system of the St. Tammany Parish library system. Like it's, you know, one bill just for St. Tammany. So can you tell me, for folks who don't know, the trans healthcare ban for it's under what age? That's under 18. And what does that mean for people under 18? Like, what would that yeah. do? So it's it's remarkable the way that, it, 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 I think in one respect, it's really unfortunate that there are so few trans people because it means that we just don't have the volume to say what it actually means. And so all of these people who are not trans and many of whom have never even met a trans person get to just make up what it means. Uh, and so what it absolutely doesn't mean is young children having you know, any kind of surgery whatsoever. That's just not what it is. And so what trans healthcare looks like for youth, um, if they're before, if they haven't reached puberty, all it, all being trans and, and supporting a trans youth at that point means is listening to who they say they are, you know, allowing them to present themselves in a way that feels authentic to them. And so in, in a lot of cases, uh, pre-puberty, that just means letting a trans kid tell you what kind of haircut they want and what kind of clothes they want to wear and what kind of name they feel accurately represents who they are as a person and trusting them when they tell you who they are. Um, and so there's absolutely no kind of medical intervention at all before uh, a trans youth reaches puberty. And then when they do reach puberty, um, what it looks like is in consultation with their parents and with their healthcare providers, um, talking through uh, what options look like. And what that looks like first um, for someone who's reaching puberty is starting what we call puberty blockers. Um, and so these are medicines that you know cisgender children um, who experience precocious puberty, which is you know puberty that happens much too early um, or for whatever kind of reason take to uh, to prevent that until a more appropriate time. Um, it, the same medicine is uh, is what trans kids take to give them, their family, and their doctors more time to really investigate what uh, they want to, to to do with their with their lives going forward, and, and you know, while what their gender identity really is, and what they want their body uh, to look like to represent that. And so it's just puberty blockers at first, um, which just literally places a pause on puberty. And at any point, if they discontinue taking those puberty blockers, kind of the, the natural puberty process that their body would have gone through kicks into gear, uh, which is how it works for cisgender children with precocious puberty. They're on puberty blockers um, until they reach uh, kind of an appropriate age for uh, a normal puberty, and then they stop them and their body you know, engages and they go through it. Um, and so for trans kids, though, what that looks like is if after a couple of years on, on puberty blockers, they're, you know, they've maintained and, uh, you know, are consistent in that, you know, they, they are trans and, and they want to be acknowledged and moved through the world as um, this gender that they say they are in concert again with their parents and their doctor. Uh, what it looks like is starting testosterone if they're a trans masculine person or estrogen if they're a trans feminine person. Um, and these are the same, you know, testosterone and estrogen are the same drugs that, you know, cisgender people take in these reasons. There are a lot of, uh, for example, menopausal women who might take estrogen, and I take the same estrogen as, as they do. Um, men on testosterone replacement therapy, uh, it's the same testosterone that, uh, that a trans person takes, right? And so, you know, if, all, if the kid agrees and their parents agree and the doctor agrees that, you know, this is safe and right for them at that point, 
they will start um, that sex hormone um, that aligns with their gender identity. And what that does is allows their body to go through that puberty. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm a trans woman. And so, you know, I actually got a you know, pretty deep voice for my puberty. I grew a beard um, and all these things were really distressing for me because I didn't identify with them. They didn't, um, you know, they, I didn't feel like they represented me at all. And it was created this really horrible uh, and, and very uh, miserable dysphoria. Um, and, uh, and so all it does is allow those trans kids to go through the puberty they feel that they always should have been able to go through. Um, and that's all, that's all it is. And then eventually, um, at some point, if they uh, are interested in it, um, at some point in their lives, they might access some kind of, of surgery. Um, and so, for example, if you're uh, like a trans mask person, um, so that is, you know, you're assigned female at birth, but you identify um, as, as a boy or a man. Um, if you did go through puberty before realizing you were trans or you didn't have access to puberty blockers, um, it's very possible that you would have developed breasts, for example. And that can be really distressing. If, if you're a man with breasts, you know, just like boys and men who have gynecomastia, uh, which is when boys and men develop breasts due to, um, you know, hormonal, hormonal issues, um, they can have surgery to, to get it removed. And so uh, if sometimes for, for kids who, you know, weren't able to access puberty blockers, they may have developed breasts. And for those trans boys, you know, when they're old enough, they, it might be appropriate to, to remove those. Um, but that is not routine care for youth at all. It's, it's very rare um, for, uh, for, for surgeons to, to want to operate on uh, folks under 18. And it's also, these are like, it's surgery is scary for anybody, even for trans people. Nobody is like very excited and wants to rush into a surgery. And so most of the time, even you know, trans youth and their families aren't like demanding surgery before 18. It's just not happening. And so the Louisiana Department of Health at the request of the legislature actually compiled a report on trans youth uh, Medicaid uh, usage. And from 2017 to 2022, through Medicaid, there are absolutely zero surgeries uh, on trans youth performed in Louisiana. Um, and also the reality is we just, Louisiana just does not have many surgeons who, who do trans-related surgery anyway. Um, but so it's not something that is happening in Louisiana. It's not something that is happening in large numbers at all. Um, and in most cases, uh, for trans youth who are, who are just telling you who they are, all that, all supporting the means is saying, I believe you, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's ironic to me for Republicans who are pushing these things who on the one hand will say they don't want the government co-parenting, right? But in the meantime, they're wanting to go between parents and their trans kids' health. Yeah. That seems quite ironic. That said, we have Democrats who are voting for this stuff as well in our state. Yeah, we sat through the House Health and Welfare Committee hearing on the healthcare ban and uh, the one who called us groomers uh, the most is Democratic state rep Kenny Cox. Just, it's it's really astonishing how rapidly this narrative caught on and spread. Um, and, and I think that speaks to the remarkable power of kind of the conservative media machine. That even people that, you know, you we could have used to count on as, as allies 
have kind of been tripped up and, and bought into these kinds of conspiracy theories. And you alluded to this when you mentioned your own dysphoria, but what are the dangers of these healthcare bans for trans kids? Yeah, so it, it's really hard to explain to, to cis people kind of what dysphoria feels like, but it is, it is a profound um, and often kind of uh, debilitating disconnect between who you know yourself to be um, and then what you see in the mirror and then what the world sees and how the world treats you. So for, for me, and I, I don't want to speak for all trans people, all trans people can have all different kinds of experiences. Um, but for me, I, I basically was able to accomplish nothing in my, my life until I transitioned. Uh, I was profoundly depressed all throughout my childhood. Um, I actually um, left college for on, on medical leave. I didn't technically drop out, but I left Vanderbilt in 2009 um, because my dysphoria had just gotten so bad that I couldn't function. Um, like I couldn't get up and go to class. I couldn't do work. I couldn't focus on anything other than how it felt like I didn't want to, there was no reason for me to exist in the world because I couldn't envision myself in it uh, the way that I, I, I understood myself to be. Um, and so it, it's really kind of hard to convey that to someone who has never had that kind of disconnect uh, with their, their gender or with their body. Um, and so there are like, sometimes people suggest all kinds of thought experiments, like just imagine you woke up and you had boobs if you don't have boobs, or you woke up and you had a penis if you don't have like this, that's kind of, I'm not sure how helpful that stuff is. Um, but it's, it's very distressing if you are a, a woman and, uh, or it, it can be, for me, it was very distressing to be a woman but to have, you know, just have a beard and, and to have kind of all these, these uh, like physical characteristics that didn't feel like, like mine at all. Um, and it's hard to convey kind of the, the depth of, of depression that that can cause. Like I was, you know, actively suicidal for a very significant portion of my life until I transitioned. Um, but then I transitioned and then I was able to, like live, it, it feels like I transitioned to 26 and it feels like I didn't even really start my life until then. Um, and like, I've just, it's been so, it's hard to convey that, all right? Like I try to, I'm, it's weird that I, I work in politics and like I'm technically a lobbyist, but I, I have very bad social anxiety and often it manifests itself as panic attacks uh, when I testify in hearings. So, which is, you know, not an ideal quality for a lobbyist to have. Um, but like one of the things that I, I tried to share in, in Senate Health, I don't think I actually quite got the point across, is, is that I have been able to to be like I, I feel a very uh, uh, productive, like contributive member of, of uh, like Louisiana society. Like I've I've been able to like work with my friends on these harm reduction projects and try to get Narcan more available. Um, and uh, last year, kind of my the law that I'm most proud of ever of having written and passed was an improvement to Louisiana's overdose Good Samaritan Act. Um, and, and many of these same legislators in these committees have like worked with me or, or I, even if they haven't talked with me directly, I've talked with the sponsor of my legislation and supported it. Uh, and and it, it's, it's like, I, I feel like all children should have the opportunity to learn how they want to and how they're able to contribute to the world and, and live in it and be validated and accepted as who they are. Um, and so when people say that cutting off access to 
trans healthcare will cost lives. I, you know, that's my experience. When I transitioned in 2012 in Louisiana, it was still very, very hard to get access to trans healthcare. Um, they made you go through this really demeaning process of filling out these like really, really retrograde questionnaires about your sexual practices and and all and your like fetishes and stuff. And I, I'm I'm asexual, which means that I don't experience sexual attraction and I don't have any interest in sex. And so you can imagine like just having to fill this stuff out is just <laughs> bizarre. And you need like these cis people who don't know what it's like to be trans to like sign off. And you need to have like gone through several months of this and get two letters and then a doctor will consider writing your prescriptions. And after I like I admitted, I, I admitted to myself that I was trans in 2009, but I told myself, okay, but I don't need to do anything about it. And I was very, very wrong, right? Um, but having you know, accepted that I was trans, when I eventually accepted that, okay, I'm like out of options. If, if I don't try a transition, like I don't know, I think I might just be, be done. Uh, and so I, I access gray market internet hormones. Um, I had, uh, I was in an IRC chat room with a, with a bunch of trans women supporting each other. Um, and so we had all done a lot of kind of research on trans healthcare. Um, and until last year when I actually got a non-binary GP, a general practice, like my own doctor who's non-binary, until last year, until I got them, I've never had a doctor that knew more about trans femme hormone replacement therapy than I did. Like trans their access is just that bad. Um, and so I just started myself because kind of the rumors that were going around Louisiana at the time uh, were that there was one doctor in New Orleans, God, God bless him, his name was Tracy Conrad, he's since passed from cancer. Um, but there were rumors that you could basically bully him into writing new prescriptions. If you showed up um, and you were taking gray market hormones um, with, you know, not under the supervision of a doctor, in the name of harm reduction, God bless harm reduction. No wonder I got into that, you know. In the name of harm reduction, he would actually write you, you know, formal legitimate scripts just to make sure that you were accessing real medication and having your levels monitored and stuff. And um, I, one thing it's, you know, kids aren't stupid. Kids these days are more internet savvy than ever. And so if, if you ban this care, I don't see why kids these days wouldn't be able to find and, and do the kind of same, things that I did. And if you don't allow them to have, you know, real medical advice and supervision from a doctor, they'll take the advice of internet randoms. So our bills, the three bills that came out uh, in Louisiana this year, they all passed. One had a hiccup that's sort of fa a famous hiccup that a Republican in committee killed it with yeah. a lot of ado. But ultimately, all three passed. As we're recording this, there's, well, Governor John Bell Edwards has said he will veto those bills. And so, so I guess- probably. So probably. I think he said that I expect that's what I'll do or something okay. like that. So there, so there is not, a- Not the strongest commitment that we would have hoped for, but yes. There's a push to see that he follows through on that. Absolutely. And yeah. then the question is whether or not there'll be a veto session, yeah. override session. It's, it's my hope that they, like, 
obviously, as as we talk, they're still uncovering all of these hilarious bungles in the, the budget they scrambled to pass because they wasted yes. so much time on this anti-LGBTQ stuff that right. they didn't actually spend as much of the fiscal session as they should have doing fiscal budget stuff. And, and let's underscore that. It was a fiscal session. They were there specifically to handle the budget. Mm-hmm. And they spent all this time attacking some of the most vulnerable people of of our communities. Yeah, and so these things passed. And I want to touch briefly on how uh, the healthcare ban passed. Okay. Uh, Just with with a little context. So last year, we had a don't say gay bill that we'd managed to kill in the House Education Committee. Uh, And then they they used this extreme maneuver to pull the dead bill onto the full House floor, kind of over the objection of that committee. Uh, and and none of us had seen that happen in the legislature before. And most of and the most of the legislators and other lobbyists in the building we talked to had never seen that happen before. And so kind of progressives in Louisiana kicked up a big fuss about it because that's ridiculous. And what happened last year is we kicked up such a fuss that they then never took the bill up on the House floor and it didn't move last year. And so kind of fast forward to this year, we're able to, first of all, um, it taking a detour to one of the, the book ban bills. I think it was SB7 uh, in the, or maybe it was the House bill. But in, again, in the House Education Committee, they allowed the three supporters of the book ban bill who showed up to speak in support and then did not allow any of the, I think at least a dozen opponents to speak before voting it out of. And then we kicked up a stink about that. And then they got, you know, scared again by how much deep there was and they recommitted the bill to house education and then and then uh the the republican chair of house education resigned from the committee in protest and so we kind of had those two instances of them using like really egregious maneuvers to try to push these things forward but then like accurately recognizing that there was immense public backlash to this and bipartisan backlash and even you know lobbyists in the capitol working on kind of all sorts of issues don't want this to become you know a regular occurrence because it makes it really hard to work your schedule and priorities if you can't count on something that is killed staying dead you know like nobody wants it to just be the wild west all the time where you have to be ready to do everything zombie uh, bills right zombie bills and so what happened this year is is in um senate health Fred Mills, Senator Mills, who you know, is one of the most respected uh, legislators in the building um, and is a pharmacist himself. And so kind of, I'm really appreciative for the way that he still seems to hold to those like values that he learned in his medical education of kind of trusting the doctor patient relationship and trusting the kind of existing licensing and regulatory uh, mechanisms that we have for, for that profession and for accessing medicine. Um, uh, actually, you know, voted to uh, to kill the bill, and I, I my understanding is he, I read an article. I have not actually read the procedure to make sure this was right, but I read an article that he didn't actually even have to cast a vote there because the tie supposedly you know results in a in a bill not moving forward. Um, but he actually did, and I think that the kind of message that he gave uh, about trusting the doctor patient relationship and trusting the mechanisms that we do have to handle you know any instances of malpractice um, that come up. Uh, was was really powerful and reasonable and in a debate that often lacks kind of reasonable discourse. And so I was very appreciative of that. And I know how hard advocates in the state worked to kind of do all this political education, kind of all legislators, but then especially for you know, committee chair 
Mills, I believe that's actually Peyton, who's the president or the executive director of LTAs, I, I believe uh, she's in his district. And so I know that she has had like a really productive relationship with him. And I'm really grateful for his leadership there. Um, and then after that happened, kind of there was a huge national furor. And so all of these kind of ways that it used to feel like Louisiana was some, somewhat insulated from these like larger national currents, uh, we just got word that there was immense national pressure for Louisiana Republicans to find a way to ram this through. And so after kind of some, some tantrum things like attaching really ridiculous amendments to uh, one of Fred Mills telehealth related bills that have nothing to do with trans people um, to try to like punish him for, for his vote. Um, they voted to recommit the bill to Jude A, uh, to Ju Senate Judiciary A, which is you know a miserable committee, it's horrible. And even the justification that they used for it for the recommittal was, well, this bill will probably get us sued and Jude has done other things that got us sued. So they should, it's germane to Jude can go there. Um, and then, so they recommitted it. I think it was a Thursday. Uh, it was either a Wednesday and a Thursday or the Thursday and a Friday, but I, I think it was a Thursday night they recommitted it. And then Friday morning, they swiftly passed it through Jude um, where it moved on to, to the floor and, and got passed again in both chambers. So just the, it, it's really scary and, and extremely disheartening the extraordinary measures that they are going to, to push this agenda um, because they were actively holding up budget, you know, negotiations, budget bills to force uh, the trans healthcare ban forward, which is not in the interests of any Louisiana. Like it's definitely not in the interest of trans Louisianans, but it's it's not in the interest of any Louisianans for legislators to do this kinds of stuff instead of work on a budget that works for all of us. And so it's really you know, it's not surprising that the budget is full of holes and like they accidentally cut judges compensation across the board and judges, you know, it's not surprising that that's the result of this process because they didn't approach the budget like adults <laughs> because right. they were doing all this other stuff that people who aren't even from Louisiana were demanding they do. Yeah. Um, and so if we're kind of in a new paradigm here in Louisiana where they're taking marching orders from people outside the state, I'm really not excited <laughs> to see, you know, where we're, where we're heading. And what, if there's a veto override, what happens when these bills go into law? Well, um, we're going to see, you know, on the, the, the education front with the, the book ban and the don't say gay bills, um, we're already seeing in other states kind of the remarkable effect this is having. Um, you know, you, you might have seen kind of the viral photos of empty library bookshelves in Florida while all of the books are being reviewed to make sure they don't contain you know, LGBT, the, the wrong kind of LGBTQ or racial content, um, where classroom discussions are being stifled. I think I saw a story in South Carolina yesterday or the day before about how um, a teacher was told to shut down um, kind of the discussion of Tanashi Coates' Coach's memoir that the class had been doing because it's talking about race made a white student uncomfortable. Um, it, it's, we're, we're not setting our, our children up for success if we can't teach them the truth. So we can't equip them to to move through the world and understand the world and communicate with each other in sincere and truthful ways. And one of the, the scariest things is that if we can't 
talk about the existence of, of LGBTQ people, then young queer youth who maybe have not found a queer community yet, or who don't know any other queer person yet. Like I felt like I was alone, literally the only person in the world who felt what I now know is dysphoria. And I thought I was entirely alone and I was a huge weirdo that something was wrong with. And then I learned, oh, I'm trans and there are other people like me and I can connect with them and hear about how they have processed this and, and we can support each other. It was, it was life-saving. And so if we can't you know, teach or even talk about the existence of LGBTQ people in schools, or we can't even teach about the truth of race in America, then so many kids of color, so many queer kids um, are going to feel lonely and desperate for so much longer than they need to. It's just so, so sad. And then obviously on the healthcare front, what, we're, what we would do is, is what's happening elsewhere across the country. We're seeing thousands of trans families migrate from states that have passed these bans to states that haven't. Because the reality of this is that if you are a trans kid and you, your parents love you and you come out to them, they're, going, they're not going to have a choice other than to try to find a way to help you access healthcare that you need. And one of the cruelest things about these is that, you know, again, kids aren't stupid and kids are especially with how hard coming out can be. Um, I remember thinking about, I was 26 when I came out to my parents and I was thinking about like what a burden it would be on them that I was trans, that like they would have to have a trans child and, and they would, you know, they would, could face victory and stuff for it, you know? And, and so that's already enough to think about and to make coming out scary. But if kids know that their parents love them and so they know that if they come out to their parents, their parents will try to find a way to afford to uproot their family and move and try to find new jobs elsewhere and try to find housing that they can afford elsewhere. And if you have siblings, you and your siblings are going to have to find new schools and establish new friend groups. That's a lot. And, that's a, and, and kids know that that will have to happen. And so that's just a really unfair way to place on a child's shoulders. And I, I think that what it will undoubtedly do is cause more kids to selflessly, valiantly, but stupidly remain in the closet to try to save their families from that kind of pain. And I personally know how dangerous being in the closet is because it nearly killed me. Um, and I am, am sure that it will result in that for, for some children. And then obviously there are some families who literally cannot afford to move. Maybe, you know, they, they, they are, are much too poor and there's just no support services that can help them do that. Or they can't leave for other reasons. Like they have to take care of elderly family members or they have really strong community obligations and other people are counting on them for care and things like that. And so there are going to be other families who can't leave and whose kids will not have any options of, of working through these things with a doctor and with their, their families and may have to go through these puberties that feel like nails being driven into all of your body. It's, it's really terrifying. So these are, these are, it's easy for, for, you know, folks who aren't, you know, LGBTQ or especially trans to think of these things as kind of 
niche issues that affect a couple of people, but this affects whole families and whole communities in really, really significant ways. Uh, like just imagine if, you know, your state somehow outlawed diabetes healthcare and like it was illegal to get insulin in your state. Because that's that's what it's like for for trans people, and and then you would you would have to find if you're diabetic you ha you have to try to find a way to to move, and if you can't, uh, your health is going to rapidly deteriorate. You know, Corinne. For if folks are listening and they are LGBTQ and they haven't connected to community yet, or if they want to be an ally and help with the efforts that you're working on, what's the best way for people to connect to the work you're doing? Uh, well, the best way to connect to the work in Louisiana um, is through joining the Local Coalition. I say it weird because it's spelled weird. It's L-O-C-A-L-L. -L. Um, it's Louisiana. Louisianans organizing for all Louisiana. I'm not, I'm not, I don't quite remember exactly what it stands for, but it is um, the, the broad coalition that formed for quality in Louisiana Trans Advocates Assembled. So, you know, ACLU of Louisiana is in there, Step Up Louisiana, all, like all of these great progressive organizers and folks are in this coalition working together. Um, and so joining that coalition uh, is, is great. Um, we, have th we have through the session weekly calls. I'm not sure what that uh, will move to, um, but that is a great way to, to get plugged in. Um, Do you need to be a part of a group or can you just be an individual to join that call? You can, you can just be an individual. You do not need to be part of a group. It okay. is... Anybody who, who wants to you know, kind of join the, the fight and learn how to organize and, and, and work on this stuff together. Um, well, and I'll, I'll put a link if you'll give me one for that, for how people absolutely. can connect to that in the episode notes. And for Louisiana Trans Advocates, is there a way for folks to connect to that as well? Um, absolutely. LATransAdvocates.org. And then I will say if you are trans or you know the parent of a, of a trans child, um, LTA does run support groups throughout the state and uh, they were like crucial for me and finding for the longest time, you know, I'd only ever talked once I realized that I wasn't alone and I talked to, to other trans people online, but talking to other trans people in person in my community was amazing. And so um, especially if you are trans or you're the parent of a trans child who's just come out and you haven't been able to connect directly with other folks in your community, I would strongly recommend LTA support groups and then any local PFLAG support groups if you have one near you um, for parents, especially. Uh, so strongly encourage folks to go to latransadvocates.org there too. And then uh, I work for Equality Federation. Uh, you're, I, I would encourage Louisiana folks, if you have cash to donate, to donate to local causes. Um, but we're at equalityfederation.org. Well, I will put all the links in the episode notes if folks would like to access any of that. Let me go to our last three questions. And I appreciate all the time you've given me today and all the breakdown on all of that. I think we could probably talk for several more hours on all this <laughs> I think stuff. so too. I think it's dangerous. <laughs> but Corinne, tell me what you think the biggest obstacle for progressives in Louisiana is. Ooh, <laughs> it's like, which, which of the dozen enormous obstacles do we pick? This might be right up your alley. I, I, I think that it is probably the, the way that the Democratic Party in the state has kind of withered. You know, I am, I'm a little further left than the Democratic Party, but it is really, really imperative that we have some kind of strong opposition force to kind of this, this fascist wave that has overtaken the GOP. And I, I think the like most immediate way to to provide that is through 
you know, if we had a stronger party in Louisiana to try to organize against this stuff better and maybe do kind of some of the political education. So we didn't have a Democrat in House Health calling us groomers when talking about the healthcare ban. You know, I, I think that would go a long way. But I mean, I think kind of like like all of our hurdles, it's a big uphill battle there. And what's our biggest opportunity? I think our biggest opportunity is how broad based our organizing is. You know, I got to be part of, I, I've been part of, of so many wonderful coalitions in Louisiana, but um, the one I, I kind of am, am most proud of or, or really, really uh, proud of is Louisiana Youth Justice Coalition that managed to pass the uh, youth justice reform package a few years back. Um, I think that the, the South generally and, and Louisiana specifically, because we kind of have always had to work together as progressives to get things done. And um, we don't stay siloed in, it's not, it's never been the case that like, it's always just been, we're working on LGBTQ stuff over here and you're working on youth justice reform over here. It's always been, all right, we're, I'm gonna work with you on your stuff and you're gonna work with me on my stuff. And I think that that is like going to be the organizing model that the entire country is eventually going to wind up using because it is the most effective. And I think that we have a huge head start here because we have had to move into that model in ways that maybe you don't have to in blue states. We can kind of take a little more for granted and don't have to like build together as much. I think that's right. And Corinne, tell me who your favorite superhero is. Do the Ninja Turtles count? I feel like we'd be in a lot better shape if maybe the Ninja Turtles were real. I think um, that's that's great. Yes, I, absolutely. They're, I feel they're, like their experience fighting the Foot Clan would be really appropriate to kind of what we're, what we're heading into here. I think that works. There's no rules to favorite superheroes, so I'll take it. Yeah, cool. Well, well, thank you so much. Thanks for joining me, Corinne, and thanks for helping illuminate some issues that folks may not be caught up on. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you, Linda, and I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to Louisiana Lefty. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you to Ben Collinsworth for producing Louisiana Lefty, Jen Pack of Black Cat Studios for our super lefty artwork, and Thousand Dollar Car for allowing us to use their Swamp Pop Classic Security Guard as our Louisiana Lefty theme song. <laughs>